This podcast is a member of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts and content creators, visit bio.link slash red5. Discover Planet of the Apes. civilization where humans run wild in the jungles. And the superior beings are apes. Thank you for coming back to the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast, everybody. This is Ro from the Scare of Podcast. I've got a really great discussion leading up to this. Uh, we, we we have been talking about a lot of science fiction shows um, in our previous episodes. We talked about Buck Rogers. Obviously, we went into the, the Delta Quadrant, did a little Star Trek talk of the original series with our friend Amanda and uh, Space 1999 with uh, the wonderful friend uh, Melanie, Melanie Marquita. And um, we are back at it. Uh, one of the things that um, fascinates me about uh, television uh, from the 70s and, you know, th- this one in particular in the 60s, because on t- television is where, where I found this movie. Um, but... Um, I've always wanted to talk about it or have an episode on the original Planet of the Apes, which was released in 1968, way back then. Um, But obviously a lot of people that uh, that enjoy the movie now, uh, you know, found it either, you know, on television or DVD or VHS even. Um, But uh, the original Planet of the Apes um, is uh, is close to my heart for many reasons. I love science fiction of of that era, and uh, as a kid, obviously, you know, obviously, Star Wars was the big one. But um, you know, movies like this, Planet of the Apes, was uh, was a treat for me as as a kid. And uh, here to help out with the conversation, uh, first time ever here on the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast, Alex Moyland. Alex, how you doing tonight? I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the Citadel, as they say. Yeah, first time scuttle buddy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you, because let's let's talk a little bit about the, uh, I guess, um, our, uh, we've had discussions online, obviously, you know, you, uh, you've been gracious enough to kind of listen to some of the episodes, but, um, you know, the planet of the apes was definitely something that I've always wanted to talk about, but it seems like you were already thinking about it and talking about it and doing a little research even before I approached you. And I think it's, it's because I noticed that, uh, you had done some research that I said, Hey, Let's do a let's do an episode on Planet of the Apes. Tell me a little bit about your 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 research and why did you go into this? Yeah, I mean it's such a fascinating film, isn't it? And it's one that I think is often forgotten about, and at least in the context of the original, despite having the classic ending, despite having the classic lines. And I think it's just by virtue often of it's being from 1968. You know, you take someone now today in 2023, they hear a 1968 film. And I'm not even sure what first comes to mind, really. 
Um, I think a lot of folks sort of forget or, you know, don't really know when Planet of the Apes came out. I think it's under the shroud of Star Wars in a great way. Um, there was so much great science fiction coming out around that time for people to cling to. Um, you know, and for me, I came to the apes in the 90s. Um, you know, you mentioned how people come to it. And for me, it was on television. It was on maybe a, a 32-inch television. What was it? What was it like for yourself? You had mentioned earlier um, coming to it after it had come out. Yeah, obviously, uh, you know, it's one of the movies that I saw. I didn't see it on the big screen. Um, I saw it in television, you know, syndication. And, and uh I was just, you know, even as a kid, I mean, I was really blown away. Um, I, I've got a story uh, for you later on. We're going to talk a little bit about Ape Mania, but um, don't forget to, uh, to to remind me. But yes, I mean, you know, science fiction as a as a as a kid, you know, obviously, you know, my love for Star Wars, but science fiction as a kid for me was. Um, I don't know. It was jaw dropping. It was eye opening. Um, I always say that it makes you think outside the box because there are so many concepts in science fiction that are just um, really like eye opening. They they're concepts that make you think and, um, you know, again, just really make you think outside the box. And I think that's one of the aspects of science fiction that I really, really enjoy. I don't like to be constricted in in thought and ideas. I think uh, science fiction really checks off that box for me. So it's it's really cool. And Planet of the Apes, I mean, you know, we're we're, we're going to dive into why Planet of the Apes uh, is is cool. You mentioned a lot of the lines. You know, obviously the the ending, which you know, again for me as a, as a as a young kid, and I can't remember how old I was when I actually saw the movie. Um, but it was it was mind blowing. Um, that that last shot, you know, everybody talks about the uh, the 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 ending, the the twist, and its implications. And even like I said, even as a as a kid, I was like blown away. Mm-hmm. Well, even I watched the original film this weekend, just days ago, and I had the notepad out. I'm sitting there thinking, all right, let's do some homework. Let's watch this film from start to finish, no interruptions. Let's soak it all in, and. You know, it's funny, 30 minutes go by and I'm not taking any notes. Like the notepad's actually on the ground and we're both sort of thinking the same thing. It's such an introspective film, but you're sort of taken on a journey through the first act of, you know, getting lost in a way, almost like you're middling around just like the astronauts. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, just like the Star Destroyer coming out, you know, from beneath the opening crawl for the first time, it's a, it's an ape on a horseback and you're thrown into this almost like a horrifying experience for a group of astronauts. You know, not to get away from what we're talking about, but I think, you know, that's what it is. It's, it is true science fiction. It reminds me so much of Star Trek in a way. Like some of my notes are, uh, this is Planet of the Apes, the 1968 film would almost be Kirk's worst nightmare. You know, right. <laughs> he's the landing party. Imagine they lose contact with the Enterprise and this is the, the Earth that they find, the role reversal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, let's uh, let's do a little background uh, check here. So 1968, uh, directed by Franklin Schaffner. Um, 
screenplay by Michael Wilson and a name that a lot of people will uh, definitely uh, recognize, Rod Serling. And isn't that the funny thing is you just mentioned those three names and obviously Rod is the one that sticks out, but in doing the research, rewatching the film, I think another part of the staying power is I don't think of so many of the behind the scenes names as I do is on what I saw on the screen, the on-screen actors, um, again, what was said, what was shown, but you know, this movie feels like the twilight zone. And, And that's why you get all of Rod out of it. Like, I I can only imagine what folks thought seeing this on screen as like the extended Twilight Zone episode in a way. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and you know the cast was uh, was great. I think I think um, the the cast really lended itself to a certain gravitas to the story. I think uh, you know I I mentioned. Um, I mentioned earlier, I think before we started rolling, um, my love for Space 1999, you know, although a lot of that uh, series was a little tongue in cheek and kind of corny, you know, I, I won't compare it too much to the old Doctor Who, but it's kind of along the same, uh, you know, the, in the same neighborhood. But Planet of the Apes, I think because of the actors and we have, you know, stars like Charlton Heston. Roddy McDowell, I mean, Kim Hunter, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these, uh, these actors were, um, you know, top of the line during that time. And I, I, I do, I want to get into the, um, the transformation these actors, um, you, you know, went under to be transported, you know, obviously not, not, not the human actors, but the ape actors, you know, Roddy McDowell, um, I think that is one of the aspects of this film that really cemented itself in history. Um, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Don't you agree? Oh yeah. And I think for me, even as a child to today, um, if there was anyone to cling to any particular actor or character from this film or the series, it's Ryan McDowell, um, and his Cornelius in this film. Um, you know, I think if you were to ask people, what do they cling to? And it could be moments, like we said, the ending or lines, but, um, there's something about that makeup and the performance under that. And uh, I don't know what it was, but even as a child, something about it stood out to me. And I, you know, every subsequent viewing of the film, it's like you see those those human eyes beneath that ape face even more. It's uncanny, isn't it? <laughs> I, you know, to speak of Uncanny Valley, um, you know, as we've done in the past on Twitter, like it's the opposite of that when yeah. you actually are seeing that person there. It's 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 so surreal. It is. It is. Um, you know, obviously the makeup uh, won some some uh, very prestigious awards, uh, you know, behind the scenes. Um, there is uh, and I'm sure you own the definitive uh, DVD collection of all the Planet of the Apes movies. Um, there are some really great behind the scenes uh, documentaries on those, uh, DVDs, which I love watching. Um, I, you know, every, every so often they're kind of like my go-to, uh, I love, obviously I love everything behind the scenes, but this one in particular really has a great story to tell because they were trying to figure out, you know, how to, how to create these, these, these make effects to make it believable that these, you know, characters were, were apes and let alone, you know, apes that are walking around, but, uh, apes and, and characters that were, you know, expressing emotion and talking and, and, uh, I, I think, you know, 
not unlike the fact that uh, you know George Lucas had this um, this dilemma whether they would make you know Yoda a puppet in the Empire Strikes Back or mm-hmm. or an actual you know character. I mean, are they they're going to trust their uh, the weight of the film to this puppet? I think they did the same thing with Planet of the Apes, but. You know, sometimes when a gamble pays off, it pays off big, uh, just in the case of, of uh, the, the apes and Planet of the Apes. And can you even imagine what it must have been like to release that film? And, and this is a film not unlike Star Wars that had a lot of obstacles from pre-production to production, um, you know, a lot of studio fears. And, I, you know, I guess you can understand where the studio was coming from, because if when the first ape appears on screen and if the audience laughs – you just lost the audience at right. the 35, 40 minute mark. And it's, you know, what an interesting parallel when you mention, you know, Empire and Yoda. And I think of um, the cantina scene from A New Hope. I, I almost think that's similarly timed to when we first see an ape in Planet of the Apes, where you get 35 to 40 minutes in the film. If you're an audience member, you know, you're really kind of making that decision. Are you in or are you out on this new adventure and these new characters? Yes. If you walk into the cantina as a first time viewer and you're not sold, you might be lost. Just like if you're in that field on Planet of the Apes and there's apes on horseback. And if you chuckle, then you're not going to get to the second and third act and be able to soak up all those introspective scenes and chew up on all that dialogue for years as I've done. Yeah. One of the things that I pay really close attention to when it comes to watching movies like this, it's the, the direction um, the way that the director communicates specific um, character tones or surprises. And you mentioned the first time that uh, that we see an ape on horseback. And I think that is probably one of the times where, you know, obviously the audience is first seeing them and, you know, we're getting a glimpse into what is to, to come, you know, based on the rest of the movie. But the characters in the movie are also seeing this ape on on horseback for the first time, you know, very confused, like what the hell's going on? Um, and there are certain, you know, camera moves that are very, um, you know, uh, directly tied to to how the director communicates this sort of surprise. And I think, you know, what back in the 60s and it's kind of like an old school thing where they, you know, you you do a quick zoom into the, the subject within the frame uh, just to kind of give you that shock value. And absolutely, you know, you zoom into this ape on horseback and. He's riding around and they cut back to, you know, Heston and, and, and the, uh, uh, the rest of the uh, astronauts, uh, you know, um, in the field. And it's just it's phenomenal. It's uh, and you're right. You have to believe it from from that point forward. Otherwise, your your narrative kind of falls apart because you're distracted by by whatever it is that that you're not believing, whatever it is that is not kind of taking you along for that ride, especially in science fiction. And there's a lot of that, uh, you know, nowadays, but it's, uh, yeah, kudos to the team, kudos to, uh, the director and, um, a great success. Great success. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, the effects and the makeup and you mentioned like the history. And if I, if I remember correctly, you know, this film was responsible for really bringing awareness to effects and makeup for the Oscars. Um, you know, I believe it was sort of an honorary Oscar or was, it was just, um, this film had won an Oscar for John Chambers had won an Oscar, 
um, for this film, I believe the following year, so maybe the 69 Oscars, whatever it was. Um, so, it, I mean, it was transformational. And I believe John Chambers may have even been brought in in sort of the 11th hour to work on the cantina, you know, working, um, you know, with Lucas in 77, or I'm sorry, 76 and whatnot. Um, I'm sure I'm getting some of those details um, back and forth. But, I mean, you can you can see how you know, a person like John Chambers lives on with the makeup. And I think another um, detail to this film that sometimes can be overlooked is the score. Um, The score composed by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, You know, it's, that's why I mean, like it's one of those things where you think of Charlton Heston, Roddy McDowell, you mentioned Kim Hunter as well. Um, All these names are just heavy hitters. Like I wasn't familiar with Jerry Goldsmith, but I started researching him and I'm, I'm realizing, oh, he's, for me, for someone of my understanding, he's John Williams before John Williams in a way. Sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, John Williams goes way way back. I think, uh, you know, when I first heard of his name he was johnny williams he was doing the uh, music for Lo- the lost in space uh, television show um but um yeah i mean jerry goldsmith you know obviously a big uh, a big name in 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 scoring films um what uh how much uh, how much money did this movie cost to make oh off the top of my head that's a yeah. I got the figure in front of me, but I just was wondering if you knew. Can I can I make a guess? Let's make a guess. I feel like they were budgeted no more than one point five million. Uh, no, that's a, a little low. Oh, okay. Well, good for them. A few. What, what was it? It was five point eight. Okay. Final closing cost for the film five point eight million, and it uh, it's domestic gross earning. What do you think? I just saw this song. I feel like I'm cheating. It's 1968, so don't go crazy, but it was crazy for 1968. Had to be in the 20s, 20 plus. $33 million. Yeah, and and it's another film, again, where the studio, you know, you can't say that they didn't have faith, but that's just an era that I just do not understand, you know, growing up now where sci-fi just was not a safe bet whatsoever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's so, and sometimes you think about, you know, again, you mentioned behind the scenes and to think that still, you know, nearly 10 full years later, Star Wars still had such a troublesome start, even from the same studio, you know, just a decade earlier. Yeah. You mentioned science fiction back then just was not a safe bet. I mean, you you had, uh, you know, you had medium like, uh, like comic books, which uh, usually was thought of as, you know, kiddie books or kid stories, uh, science fiction, you know, especially in movies and television was, was basically the same thing. You know, it wasn't serious drama. It wasn't serious stuff, but I think, you know, with the advent of, uh, you know, bringing in, you know, shows like, um, what do you call it? Uh, obviously, you know, we mentioned Rod Serling, you've got the Twilight Zone, but you know, that's when, that's when stories, uh, offbeat stories like that started to, you know, come into the more, you know, mainstream, you know, back in the day, back in the sixties. Um, and then, you know, obviously just, uh, with, uh, 
uh, with with Star Trek in the 60s, you had obviously you had stories that were kind of making their way through mainstream as well um, with uh, with the stories that were going on in, in Star Trek, uh, obviously kind of being a mirror to to uh, to society, um, you know, using uh, science fiction to kind of put a, a magnifying glass over our own, uh, you know, life and, and society and, and, and all that stuff. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, Planet of the Apes obviously had uh, its own uh, social implications and messages um, that uh, are very prevalent in science fiction even today. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Cornelius was right, Jack. He proved it. Man was here first. You owe him your science, your culture, whatever civilization you've got. Then answer me this. If man was superior, why didn't he survive? Wiped out by a plague, some natural catastrophe, a storm of meteors. From the looks of some parts of this planet, I'd say that was a fair bet. But we can't be sure. He is. He knew all the time, long before you found your cave. He knew. Defender of the faith. Guardian of the terrible secret. That's it, isn't it, Doctor? What I know of man was written long ago. Hey, let's take a break and say thank you to some patrons, but I also want to say a big thank you to some of our supporters who also help us around here. Twitter friends like Ali K. He's been following us for a really long time. Thank you, sir. I'd also like to say thank you to Vader Rapina for all the support and retweets constantly. David Giles, thank you, thank you, thank you. Neo Sailor Moon. Anthony Rural Farm Boy, thank you. Our friend Tina, you rock. And the list goes on. Just a few friends that also contribute to to the success of the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast. My thanks to you. And that's the Scuttlebutt. Okay, patrons, time to give a shout out to those wonderful people that help keep the living waters of Mandalore running around here at the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast. I extend to you a very heartfelt thank you to all my patrons. All right, how about some shout outs? Big thank you to Backyard Tardis, Nick Schaefer, a huge supporter of the Red 5 Network. Go support his channel and catch up on his adventures in locksmithing. And big thanks to Scott and Kim from the Used and Abused Podcast, another Red 5 pod. Look for them on all the socials. Some appreciation goes to the guys over at Rebel Rock Radio, DJ and Steve, rocking with another Red 5 pod. And go check out Comics and Cosmetics. Danny's got some lovely takes on uh, comics and cosmetics. Cool talk for nerdlings of all denominations. Go give her a sub. Who else we got? Hey, it's Frank from Miami. What's up, Frank? Thank you for that, kind sir. Oh, and a wonderful thank you to Belinda. Oh, my friend, I'm so glad you're on this list. And our resident classic Hollywood expert, a fan favorite collaborator, Melanie Marquita. Big hugs to you, my friend. A huge respect to all our Patreon supporters. You remind me each week why it's fun to do this and to infuse the quality discussions you deserve. And if you want to help us keep the lights on over here and enjoy the show, head on over to patreon.com slash scuttlebutt. Remember, we can't have the scuttle Without the butt, it's always sunny on Scarif with patrons like you. Do you want to talk about the dialogue a little bit? Because I noted, um, I noticed some lines that 
<laughs> I, I, I don't I don't like to pause films as I watch them. Like I really try to <laughs> soak it up and try and just relive that pure cinematic experience. But there were lines in this that I had to pause, go back, make sure the captions were on, note them. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, first, like, why don't you tell me, like, what are some of your favorite lines or lines you think of when you think of apes? I have to go to the uh, Charlton Heston line when he's, you know, finally captured in that net and, uh, you know, he gets uh, turned around in the net. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. And again, you know, going back to the director, um, you know, the way that he framed that, the way that he shot that scene, it was like, you know, it, it was kind of like a reverse surprise for for the apes, especially because, you know, at that point, none of the humans were supposed to talk. We were, you know, the humans were treated as savages and animals and the apes were, you know, it's, it's obviously role reversal. Um, but, yeah, that that is uh, that's one of my favorite lines of, of all movies. And uh, I think if you ask any any film goer, you know, out there, especially, you know, uh, the original Planet of the Apes, I, I think a lot of people will pick that one. Oh, yeah. I want to present you two lines, if I may, mm -hmm. um, one of which is another Charlton S. and Taylor line. So this one comes early on in the film. Um, <laughs> this is just one of my favorite just role reversal lines. I, I know we keep going back to that phrase. Um, so this is while the astronauts are in the field. They are surveying the crop of humans, and we should definitely get into a synopsis of the film next um, for folks who may not be familiar with it, of course. But they're surveying these subhumans as they appear to be, and Taylor goes, if this is the best they have, we'll be running the planet in six months. <laughs> and right. Yeah, I remember that, yeah. No more than six seconds later is that moment when those, you know, subhumans that they refer to them as stop, freeze. They sense something that the audience doesn't know is there yet, that the astronauts don't know is there yet. And then, no. boom, like there, the rug is pulled out from under them. And it's, it's as almost if Taylor, could you have taken those words back? Do you, sure. do you, is it some karmic justice as it were? Exactly. Um, there's that. And then let me flip to the other end of the film and we'll go to a Dr. Zayas line. Um, this comes from a scene in which Dr. Zayas and Taylor are discussing really Taylor's existence. Um, and Taylor refers to the world as being upside down. And right. Zayas responds, you may call it upside down because you occupy its lowest level, deservedly so. That, like, I, I don't know <laughs> if I've just been watching... Uh, films or TV series lately without as strong dialogue, but you can't look away from this movie. This is almost a movie that you have to have the captions on just to sure. catch some of this dialogue. Cornelius, come here. Reach into my pocket. Read to him the 29th scroll. Sixth verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, 
for he is the harbinger of death. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, those are great lines. And again, you know, just some really great, uh, great messages. You know, sometimes I think that science fiction um, has all these subliminal little, you know, little nudges uh, against society. But, uh, you know, there's nothing subliminal about uh, those lines for sure. Um, but obviously, you know, covered in fun science fiction adventure. Uh, but it's something that we definitely can, you know, uh, you know, take away from, uh, you know, the other line that I, um, that I really love, and this comes, you know, towards the end, but before that, um, let's, uh, like you said, let's go into a little bit of the synopsis, the plot. Um, uh, again, you know, if you haven't seen planet of the apes, spoiler <laughs> alert, you know, come on already, go, go watch it. What have you been doing with yourself? Uh, this is actually one of the, um, one of the films that I would consider as uh, one of the best um, movies out there, I think it would be probably in my my top five or at least my top ten for sure, the original Planet of the Apes. So if you are a uh, just a, a, a fan of not only just science fiction, but just a fan of film, uh, this should be on your list. Yeah, it's a time capsule movie, isn't it? And I, you know, I don't mean that in that it looks of a certain time, but it's one that you would put in a time capsule. I think sure. this is like a, you know, if not a top 100, certainly a top 150 film um, to this point. And that's including, you know, everything that's come in the last few decades. I think for a while, it was certainly a top 100 film, if most folks still wouldn't consider it to be today. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, let's see, during... I just had that. Where did it go? Oh, da, 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 da. Hold on a second here. Speaking of the importance of, of this film, uh, in 2001, it was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry at the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, yeah. which uh, tells you everything you need to know right there. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that wild? Yeah. And I believe the original trilogy is up there in that collection, or yeah. at least the first film. Um, yeah. yeah, let's take a stab at the synopsis, though. Do you want to dive in or? No, go for it. Go All for right. it, my friend. All right. So, you know, we settle into the film. Uh, we're in a spaceship. We see, and this is, I want to kind of tie to, let me take a stab at it from my perspective. So, you know, a little background on myself. I came to this film when I was a child. Um, I was maybe five or six years old. I was watching it on television, um, you know, maybe not VHS, might have been, you know, on cable. But for me, this is the 90s. So this, these films have been out. There's five films at that point. There's a television series. But to my young eyes, I have no understanding of what this is. And again, you can only imagine that I probably thought these apes were real. I was trying to just understand what was going on. Um, but again, like, so... I come into this as a child, not knowing who Charlton Heston is, not knowing really anything that makes this film special, almost as if this is like a, a blank slate type experience. But sure. Regardless, Aren't those the best? Aren't those the best? Yeah. Isn't that what we asked for? We <laughs> want to erase the memory and see something for the first time. Yes, absolutely. See it with childhood innocence. Um, and then again, imagine watching this film as a child and <laughs> so much dialogue just washes over you without you understanding it. But regardless of that, you know, we enter the film, we 
um, are confronted with an astronaut, Charlton Heston. He's recording his dialogue. If you're familiar with Star Trek, it sounds like sort of the captain's log. Um, And as he's recording this, we learn that you know, he and his three other crewmates have left Earth in the 1970s, but it's now, you know, the 2600. So they're on a mission in the far flung future. They're supposed to be there. He's recording his log. He puts himself to sleep. You know, we get a little bit of this classic Jerry Goldsmith score. And then all of a sudden we see a ship. We have this view from inside the ship. We're crashing. We've crashed into a sea a sea that should look familiar to Mandalorian fans from season three of the Mandalorian, actually. Um, I believe it's the, yeah, the Caspian sea, that real bluish green sea and whatnot. Um, We get a crash landing. The astronauts are awoken. What was a crew of four is now a crew of three is our one low female crew member is sort of in a sarcophagus like state in a skeletal remains. Um, As our three crew members escape Charlton Heston as George Taylor, we have his two fellow astronauts Landon and Dodge three crew members who now realize they're in the 3900. So again, like a lot's happening in a very short period of time for the viewer. So if you're a child, any type of first time viewer, you're seeing this film, you go from astronauts in space, astronauts on unknown planet. It's the 3900s. They have no clue where they are. It's now just about survival. Um, They have three days worth of rations and this is where the film really takes off. You know, this is where I mentioned you kind of get soaked up into this movie because this first act is a lot like the first act of Star Wars and New Hope. You're in the desert, so to speak. There's a lot of walking, there's talking, you're soaking up, you know, what these characters' lives are like. You're seeing the inner dynamics of these characters. And, you know, what's your impression of Charlton Heston's Taylor to this point? Because, you know, I think historically a lot of folks look back on this character and, you know, is he, do you think he's heroic when you listen to him talk in the first act of the film? I think so. I think, you know, again, I, I said it uh, earlier in the episode here, um, you know, Charlton Heston is one of those actors that brings a certain gravitas, a certain presence to the roles that he, you know, um, takes on. I mean, he was Moses for heaven's sake, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. He's, he's so he's so striking. And, you know, again, from my childlike viewpoint, you quickly can learn that this is a leading man. Um, so soon after that, we're, you know, we're with our astronauts. Again, I mentioned that line of dialogue. They come across a, a group of humans and they realize, you know, if they wanted to, they could run this planet in months. Within moments, there's the roar in the jungle. You get those quick cuts of the camera, like you mentioned, zooming in, zooming out. There's something approaching through this thicket, through the field, and all of a sudden there's apes on horseback, and it's just, it's the classic sound, it's the the horns in the background, it's the hooves in the field, it's just that you can almost like hear it if you've seen the film before, before you can see it um, in your mind's eye. It's imagining the ape for the first time, the gorilla on horseback, the horror on Taylor's face. It's astronauts running around. It's humans running around. And, you know, it's just, it's chaos, right? It's, it's pure chaos. It's, it's horror, I think, for the astronauts. And I wonder, what was it like for yourself watching it um, as a child? Yeah, it's interesting, too, because, you know, again, for somebody that really, um, you know, when I watch movies, I watch them with different 
eyes um, at, at different times. You know, once obviously the first time to kind of experience the the whole um, experience. You know, overall, and then I get into you know the technical aspect, and I think that's just the, the way my brain works. Having worked you know behind the scenes on stuff, I, I always like to see you know like nerdy stuff like where's the camera being placed you know how is the scene covered one camera two cameras close-ups all all the technical behind the stuff scene stuff um but i think during that um during that introduction sequence especially the um the the thriller aspect of it because there is uh again you know mentioned jerry goldsmith and the music um the music really helps you um dive into this world it gives you kind of a there's a there's a certain group of percussion instruments that are are present in there that really um i don't know helps you believe um it uh, transports you to this to this world and i think the music really envelops you it really helps you uh, you know, kind of go along this journey. Um, and I think, you know, later on, as you hear more of the music, you hear more of the situations, it really kind of, you know, all the, you know, when you watch science fiction, usually there's a certain aspect of of uh, suspension of disbelief. But I think the music is definitely one of the things that helps you, um, you know, take all your doubts and just leave them at the doorstep. And then you're on this journey. And I think that's, uh, that's a big credit to, to how, um, a lot of aspects of this film are, are structured and the music is definitely one of them. We talked about the makeup, of course, and the performances, but I think, you know, the music really kind of uh, seals the deal um, in my eyes or in my ears. <laughs> right, of course. Um, yeah, you know, I had a note about how the score, I think, delicately carries the viewer through the yes, movie. Absolutely. Yeah, and I wonder if you would agree with this. Like, you know, I also don't think the score ever overpowers the film, even in the most climactic moments that we'll cover. Um, you know, and sometimes I don't mean to be critical of more modern films, but there are times where I feel like the score is really there to buffer the film in a way, to sort of deliver on an emotion, to bring the audience to a certain point for then the film to sort of deliver and execute. But, you know, Plan of the Apes, um, deservedly so, receives recognition for this score. But, you know, throughout the entire film, there was never a moment where I was too distracted by it. Um, and, it, you know, even in the invention of it, you know, it's so odd because it's it's very alien sounding, yet it's made with a lot of pots and pans and, mm -hmm. you know, obviously earthbound things. I think that's one of the very unique and... Uh, and, you know, again, uh, things that just lend itself to the history of this film is that there's such a unique sound to it. And then you realize, well, Jerry Goldsmith probably, he was looking around his kitchen, like, how do I make something sound new? How sure. do I make something that sounds like it's earth, but it's also not earth at the same time? Yeah, organic. Uh, right, right. You know, so again... Um, you know, we find these three astronauts who they were on an away expedition. It very is much, or it's very much like Star Trek in that way. So I think fans of sci-fi, if you're unfamiliar with the film or the premise, like you just get sucked into that point. Um, you know, when our astronauts are quickly hunted down, much like these other humans. And, you know, let's talk about the brilliance right there of the key is the apes 
can't hear the human speak. We learn this later in the film. Um, and quickly our three speaking humans are dispatched. Um, we have one of the humans um, shot. He appears to be shot in the back of the head. Um, he falls. We have another one of the astronauts um, beaten down and falls into a body of water. And then we have Taylor, of course, who struck in uh, the neck from a bullet from a gorilla and then falls into the water as well. So very quickly, you know, these three men who could speak, who, who could raise alarm to the fact that they don't belong, they're not a part of these, this group of humans, you know, they can't utter a single word. And, you know, another one of them is gone. This crew of four that quickly became three has now even more quickly became two. Yeah, absolutely. I want to go back a little bit and uh, make a comment on what you said regarding the music. You know, I always feel like um, music is almost its own character um, in movies. Um, I feel it's definitely its own character in, in, in a movie like Planet of the Apes. Um, it, um, but you're right. It doesn't overpower. It doesn't, uh, control. And I know sometimes music is utilized to kind of, uh, accentuate an emotion, but, um, you know, with, with something like this, especially with me watching it for the first time as a kid, you know, you don't know what to feel at first. And I, obviously you count on the characters to kind of guide you through that. And I think for me, the music really does that. Um, and not just with Planet of the Apes, but I think with a lot of science fiction, I think I, I really rely on, um, the music first to kind of give me, uh, some instruction as to, um, you know, how I, I think I'm going to feel about it. Um, so definitely, you know, again, just kudos to, to, to Goldsmith on, on this because, um, it's really masterfully done. And I love that, you know, it, unlike, uh, you know, the Mandalorian, you know, especially during the first season, you have, uh, Gorenson doing, um, this very organic, mm. uh, you know, rift, um, and I love when musicians uh, that score films and television shows kind of, you know, take upon themselves to to help create or accentuate a character and not just a mood. Because, you know, you've got that, uh, you know, for The Mandalorian, you've got that uh, spaghetti Western type of, of feel to it. And then, you know, he really, Gorenson really kind of... Um, you know, uh, continued in that vein with, with the scoring of the television show. Um, it's one of my, you know, favorite, uh, new themes in star Wars. Um, I can hear it, it playing in my head right now. I don't yeah, mean to interrupt, exactly. but it, yeah. it's going back right now. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's definitely, uh, you know, it's definitely something that I, you know, kind of look for in, in movies. Um, and you know the the memorableness the you know the, are you able to hum it afterwards and um, again you know the, this is you know and I I hear it in my head all the time the Planet of the Apes song but uh, it's when we once we get into Ape Mania I I still have that little story that I want to tell you so uh, remind me because it, it's related to to hearing that music in my head as as a kid you know constantly um, but yeah absolutely. Yeah, and speaking of ape mania, you know, for our characters and for Taylor, it becomes ape mania, you know, rather quickly. And, you know, for the viewer, we go from environments that we're familiar with, though, you know, we're supposed to be on an alien planet. It, you know, they are Earth-like environments. It's lush forests. It's a desert. Um, but very quickly, we're transported to what we learn later is ape city. 
and we're in what becomes a uh, what we learn is a, a vet. It's a, an operating <laughs> yeah. room for 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 human animals, as it were. Um, and I just I can picture it now. But I think back to Charlton Heston's Taylor on the operating table receiving a blood transfusion from a chimpanzee. Um, you know, and again, it's imagining what the audience thought when they first saw that, but you know, now we're in the thick of it. We're in the, you know, this is the new world. This is ape city. This is the planet of the apes. There are apes in clothing. There are apes with medical equipment. There are apes hosing down humans. They're collecting straw. Um, you see that there's order, there's a society, there's rules, there's rank and file. Um, you know, very quickly, I think the, you know, between the screenplay, between the direction, the viewer is transported to another planet. Um, it almost as if like the moment you step into that laboratory or like that veterinary center, as it were, that's when you're really in the planet of the apes. Before you're on a planet, you know, you get into ape city. Now you're in the planet of the apes. Um, and I think that's where you see the full fledging, um, the makeup, you see apes everywhere. I mean, this is mm-hmm. where that, you know, you mentioned it was the $5.8 million as it were. I mean, I, I think, uh, five of that $5.8 million is, <laughs> yeah. is in these scenes right here. It's in ape city. Right. It's in the architecture. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see, um, I think I should uh, go ahead and tell you the story. Um, Please, my my uh, my ape mania. So you know, watching this film, I was very impressed um, as a young kid. I had, and again, I, I don't remember how old I was. I had a wooden toy rifle as a kid. I t- after watching this movie and after um, really um, connecting with uh, what's the the general general the the main gorilla's name? Do you remember uh, General Ursus? Yes. So as you can see, I mean, you you guys can't see because uh, we're, we're doing we're this is a ra- uh, an audio podcast. But as you can see behind me, um, I've got Darth Vader behind me, mm-hmm. and. Um, one of my favorite things in, in movies is, is the bad guys. For whatever reason, um, you can ask my therapist about that. But it's, it's always it's always the bad guys. And um, General uh, Urso, um, for obvious reasons, I think reminded me of, of Darth Vader. He's uh, you know tall, black figure. Uh, the shape of him is is really cool. But um, yeah, I, I I really like that character. Um, so. They both have big classic helmets. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so where wherever I went, like if my mom took me shopping or grocery shopping or we went out to a friend's house, I would take that wooden uh, toy rifle and pretend I was uh, General Urso. <laughs> but I would walk like like they did in the movie. I would be clunched over and then kind of like, you know, grabbing the, the rifle, uh, you know, and then just kind of hobbling, hobbling down the street uh, with my mom and dad. I can't, I can't imagine what they were thinking of. <laughs> oh, no, um, I've done the shuffle. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad. So this so, is like yeah. Shufflers Anonymous because there is the, there's the <laughs> plan of the, the ape shuffle. And I've done it as well. I call it the Cornelia shuffle. Exactly. And that's, you know, that, that's what I did for, for a while until I, I, I do kind of remember my mom telling me to, you know, cut it off already. Um, but it's, it's hilarious. Yeah. The, uh, the Cornelius shuffle uh, with my wooden uh, toy rifle uh, took it everywhere with me. 
Well, I mean, that's the the thing about this film, and to you know take a break from the synopsis is the fact that it's a multi generational film. I think you know it's one that parents brought their children to. It's one that those children have since grown up and have an opportunity to bring their children to. Um, my parents were born in the early '60s. I'm sure they love me dating them right now. Um, <laughs> but they, you know, we've been speaking a lot about the apes and they, you know, have been sharing about how their parents, um, how my mother's parents had taken her to see the films when they were coming out. She recalls distinctly seeing the third film in the series. You know, my father recalls seeing them on television. And, you know, I think for me, that's one of the reasons that I like them myself, even as, even as a child is, is something like, Oh, your parents like this. Your parents saw this. I want to watch it. I want to like it as well. So it's almost like there's a little bit of, uh, implicit bias of maybe I am going to like this. And, you know, you mentioned having like that toy and I think ape mania, uh, it's the toys, isn't it? Much like with star Wars, it was that, that merchandise or, you know, you always hear stories of, uh, uh, was it the Cooper brand, uh, Halloween mask and whatnot, the the plastic mask with the, the rubber band string holding it together. Um, but I mean, it really comes down to having like the toy gun or the wooden horse and those totems of the film. Um, you know, again, I, I think it's just, it's, it's such a memorable thing. And that's the, the legacy of the film is that it does live on from 68 to now 2023. Sure. Enough that, uh, you know, the studio uh, did a little reboot and, uh, you know, uh, to, you know, some degree of uh, success. But um, absolutely. But, you know, the, I, I, nothing beats nothing beats that uh, original film. And I, I don't think anything beats that that last final shot of this first film. Um, again, just very memeable <laughs> for the most part. Um, but um a very, you know, I guess for the time, a very kind of a strong cautionary tale as well. Yeah, and and that's why, like, another beautiful thing about this movie is like, it's it's what movie do you want it to be? Do you want it to be the, you know, question about faith and science because that's sort of the Cornelius and Doctor Zayas film. Um, do you want this to be the film about the right to exist because that's the Taylor film? Um, or do you want this to be the film about someone's place in society because that's secretly the Zira film? You know, she's the female scientist and there, there really secretly is that hidden movie in there where mm-hmm. she doesn't get funding. She's in a society as a chimpanzee that's ruled by orangutans and gorillas. And, you know, I made a note about how this film is, um, it's often a Rorschach test for, where someone is in their life when they watch it, what is the film to them? And I think when a child watches it with child eyes, it's one thing, but it grows upon them, much like Star Wars, where it's so layered, whether it's what you see visually or what you hear from the score, what you hear from the dialogue. Absolutely. You have a question in your notes that I really want to um, ask you about because yeah. it's a great question. Um, why are what are some of the reasons that we feel that this story or this this franchise in general um, has sustained itself decade after decade? What makes it so important? And obviously, we talked about it being one of the films that uh, are in the uh, you know Library of Congress historical record for you know um, being important. But what is it about this film that really, you know, solidifies itself in in uh, film history? You know, I think a big thing is 
there's a loose canon to it. Um, you know, there's something where I don't know if people knew what to expect um, when they sat down to watch it. Um, it's something that I think blew a lot of people's minds. Um, understandably, it was one of those firsts, as it were. Um, it's a science fiction film that predominantly takes place on the ground. And I think when a lot of folks think of science fiction, they'll think of space. They'll think of yeah. um, classic scenes from Star Wars or Star Trek 2001, etc. Um, but again, this is a, you know, a transformational science fiction film that's not only ground-based, but it's Earth-based. And it's both human and ape-based. Um, you know, I think what's also um, really important is that it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, you know, it's a film where at the end of the day, it is gorillas on horseback is what, you know, grabbed a lot of folks and sort of like it sunk their monkey paws into them and never let go since then. Um, but at the same time, it is so deep and it makes one question themselves. But you know, at the same time, there's been nine films total, and you don't really see the canon arguments taking place online. So I think it's, um, you know, it exists and it lives on because it is so introspective, like you said. It almost is something like it's a it's appointment viewing when you turn on a Planet of the Apes movie because you have to sort of sit there and think about what you're seeing as it's taking place. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, you know, it's it's a uh, it's a cautionary tale, but it's um it's really great science fiction. And like I said earlier at the top of the show, I mean, it's 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 a story that really makes you think. And I think it, you know, something as as well written as this, you know, stands the test of time. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, you know, there's the box office draw as well. Um, you know, you can see like the money that it made even in 68. And, you know, clearly there was um, a desire for the studio to make more and more. But, you know, it's also it's a it's a property that you can't just put anything out there. And I think fans saw that with the the 2000 or the 2001 film where um, that I don't even know what to call that film sometimes because I don't think it's really a remake it's not really a reboot i sometimes think of the burton film as just just existing um <laughs> you know whereas i think there was there was really something to the first film like there was something to its existence again like it was challenging um to the viewer it made one you know consider the relationship between science and faith um again to consider one's place in society um and, you know, again, like it's it's so odd when you look at the what I call the modern trilogy, the Andy Serkis trilogy, as it were, compared to the Charlton Heston film, because they're both immensely popular, but they really are so different if you're to compare one to the other. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You want to uh, let's uh, skip around a little bit more and continue with the uh, plot as we uh, make our way towards the end. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, once we're brought into Ape City, um, I think to that point, that's where we really get into the, um, what I call the second act in the heresy debate. You know, this is where we get those classic scenes in um, what I call, it's almost like To Kill a Mockingbird. I think of like yes. Elliot Niss. I think of like those those classic scenes that are in black and white where, you know, 
the dialogue is just shaking the audience to the core. And once we're in Ape City, once we have a human that, you know, as you mentioned, it's, uh, you know, take your sinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape, uh, a human that can speak, you know, there comes to question like, where is he from? How is he here? Um, you know, is he a missing link? And very quickly, I think it becomes the, um, you know, the mission of Dr. Zayas, the chief minister of the science and the faith, like what a title that is, um, to literally silence Taylor and to make him disappear. Um, and this becomes like a very quickly, a different movie than just apes on horseback. It becomes one of truth and what is truth and especially what is truth when it's held by so few people in a society, in a city. Tell me who and what you really are and where you came from and no veterinary shall touch you. I told you that at that hearing of yours. You lied! Where is your tribe? My tribe? <laughs> they live on another planet in another solar system. Even in your lies, some truth slips through. Yeah, and you know, during the uh, during that scene with uh, with the council, the orangutans, and and um, uh, Taylor explaining uh, you know certain things. There's uh, it's it's so meta, and if if you blink, you'll miss it. But there's that shot where the three orangutans are are in awe at this human speaking and what he's saying and all the philosophical stuff that that is is being introduced at this point there's a shot where all three of them are lined up and they do the speak no evil hear no evil see no evil thing where each of the orangutans you know cover up one of you know their eyes their ears their mouth and it's so subtle that uh you know like i said if if you blink you'll miss it but um again just you know masterfully worked in there and uh, it works on on so many levels, uh, both subliminally and and just you know sometimes you know m you know a lot more deliberate than than we give it credit for uh, for you know a, a science fiction film of this caliber. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, again, that's where you know in those scenes, um, you know, we're seeing the questioning of faith, the questioning of existence. You know, because for the apes, a person like Taylor cannot exist. You know, if he exists, then the fabric of their society just cannot be. Um, you know, I often think about, you know, you mentioned when you watch a film, you know, sometimes you see it from just an enjoyment perspective. You also think about it from a production standpoint. I like to watch some of these movies, whether it's Star Wars, Apes, etc., and think, what was the character doing before they just walked into this scene? And I almost think about for this movie, like is Dr. Zayas's mission to make sure that no one sees, hears, can think about a speaking human, you know, mm. to, to quarantine, to control the situation, so to speak, um, to make it only a rumor and a whisper that there was ever someone like Taylor in existence. Um, and that's quickly wow. what happens. You know, we see through um, this court scene that it's not, it's not that Taylor is on trial, it's that his ape compatriots, Zira and Cornelius, those wonderful characters played by Kim Hunter and um, 
Roddy McDowell, respectively, they're the ones that are on trial for their heresy for, you know, presenting someone like Taylor in front of these um, orangutans, in front of the those who are in control of the society. So, you know, not to get into the weeds, but, you know, these are those scenes that you can chew on the dialogue. And I, you know, I ask any of the listening audience to, you know, pop this movie on to even just skip ahead to the scenes where you have Zayas and Taylor speaking to each other because, you know, those are movies in and of itself, aren't they? Where it feels like oh, that's yeah. an episode of TV. Yeah. And you, you made a really great um, comparison uh, to kill a mockingbird. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the court scenes um, are, are, that's a great example of, of what we mean when it comes to the dialogue that is so, you know, thought provoking and, and deep, you know, without really bogging you down. I think um, I'm reading a, uh, a review from Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times. He says he gave the film three stars out of four and called it much better than I expected. It's quickly paced, completely entertaining, and its philosophical pretensions don't get in the way. And I think um, – they don't get in the way because obviously it's 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 entertainment, but they don't get in a way they 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 express themselves in a way that uh, that they're that you, you know you don't get talked down to, but they're they're concepts that are presented in a way that uh, it does kind of make you think from from both perspectives you know the orangutans and the the humans at this point and there's just so many layers for you to kind of you know explore on your own after the movie's done that i think it does a great job of of kind of expressing that and um and forcing you to to think about these concepts after after you leave the theater oh for sure it asks you to participate and you know you can't separate what was going on in the real world during the time of this movie. And I yeah. think, you know, just like Star Wars, you know, these ape films become a mirror and a reflection of society at the time. Um, and especially when you watch them decade after decade, you know, you see those stories live on uh, so clearly, um, you know, so quickly, you know, when we, you know, we see those scenes with Zayas and Taylor, um, it very quickly becomes a story for Taylor of, you know, we're not going to let you, we're not going to let you live in our society. Um, no. We're going to we're going to experiment on you. We're going to emasculate you. Um, Zayas uses the words. It's going to be a living death, essentially. Um, you know, Taylor. He's rescued from his ape compatriots. He's brought to the the forbidden zone. Something we should discuss at some point. Um, brought to the forbidden zone, where again, like now, we're getting to that climax. We're getting to that. You know that we're we're in the penultimate scenes, as it were. And we're brought to um, an archaeological dig, an archaeological dig that Cornelius the chimpanzee and archaeologist, or excuse me, an archaeologist, if I can speak tonight like an ape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to call him the, uh, the, the ape with a shovel, as Dr. Zay yeah. refers to him as in the film. Um, but we come to a dig site in which Cornelius believes he's found remnants, he's found evidence of pre-ape societies, a society or a culture that predates what they know of their own existence. And this is really the crux of Taylor's right to exist in the film. And, you know, if you want to take it from here, if you want to talk about the things that we sort of see in this dig site, this cave, as it were. Yeah. So uh, if I remember correctly, the cave is the entrance to an old subway station. And you start, obviously, you see the subway platform. Next film. That's uh, beneath, beneath the Planet of the Apes. What, so what, I, I, 
remind me then, um, there's a doll though, right? Yes. So this is a, a dig site in which Cornelius has previous found, you know, a couple pieces of evidence that Taylor quickly um, recognizes as things from a society much like his own. Um, right. False teeth, broken eyeglasses, um, I believe uh, a heart valve, but of course the item is the doll. Dr. Zayas, would an ape make a human doll that talks? And he tosses it to Zayas and the doll says, Mama. Mama. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Mama. Um, and that's the crux. And that's like that the moment when, as the viewer, you're watching Zayas, the ape, the orangutan, someone who's the leader of their society, finally being presented with what you think is incontrovertible evidence and proof that another society existed before the apes that could have been as intelligent as the apes. And even in the light of that evidence, he just casually tosses it aside. And I think that's one of the lessons for the audience where even in the face of truth, if it's not the truth that, you know, those leading the society want, they may just casually toss it aside. You know, what's that saying? It's uh, the history is written by the victors as it were, you know, maybe that was one of Serling's messages that he was trying to impart with the story. Absolutely. Uh, 100%. I think, you know, we are, um, you know, as, as the audience, we are also absorbing all this and trying and, and, and I can't, uh, I can't imagine, you know, what your brain is going through when you're getting, you know, so close to the end, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there, um, on that last final shot and the realization, uh, of, uh, what had just happened. But yeah, as, as an audience member, I can't, I can't imagine, you know, being able to, you know, to start uh, your, you know, start your wheels turning as, as far as what this means. Um, and like I said, you know, we're, we're really getting into some really deep philosophical questions and, uh, and revelations um, because that's the type of film this is, which, which I totally love. Yeah. And I think, you know, the thing is it could have been a classic film had the twist not been the location um, and, you know, I, I think it's one of the, the great things about the film is that it's not so much where he is. It's so much that he is, that he does exist, that he is there in this world. Um, I think that's one of the great things about the movie is you can really get as far as to the doll scene without really needing to know what planet he's on. Right. And even the apes are like, well, we don't we don't really care where you came from. You know, you talk of this place called earth. We want to know where you're from on this planet. We want to know where the others are. Right. Yeah. So, um, we're so close to the end. Let's, uh, Let's spoil it for everybody. And <laughs> yeah, spoiler everyone. He's on earth the entire time. Yeah, you- <laughs> absolutely. You know, again, I mean, that shot is so iconic. I mean, you know, the, we get to the scene. Um, oh, and and uh, talk, we, you know, we mentioned Star Trek a little bit. We uh, talk about uh, Star Trek and and uh, Kirk and Uhura's first uh, interracial kiss. But uh, I think uh, here we've got uh, the first interspecies kiss between, yes. uh, you know, Doctor Zira and um, and uh, Charlton Hes- Heston's character. 
Um, but, uh, you know, then um, I feel bad because we didn't talk a lot about Nova. And, oh, I know. And it was yeah. just her birthday yesterday. Oh, that's amazing. This is, yes. Um, and I, I'm just, I'm bringing that out of nowhere. Linda Harrison, Linda Harrison. Um, big, big crush on her when I was little. Yeah, very understandable. Very understandable, <laughs> as, as as did I. Um, you know, that's and I, I made a point of that, and we're coming to it like so close to the end. But you know, when you think about this movie, you think about the actors, and as an exercise, I sort of I wanted to jot them down. I was like, I was jotting down Charlton Heston, Kim Hunter, Maurice Evans. I was like. I feel so bad because how do you order these people? You know, how do you order these actors? And it's not really by importance because they were all so important down to uh, Lou Wagner, who played Lucius, the young chimpanzee accompanying um, Taylor and the crew at the end of the film with his witty little uh, quippy remarks. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it looks, uh, I've got her uh, Wikipedia up. Says her birthday is July 26th, which is tomorrow. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Look at that. Just in time. Yeah. Excellent. But, um, yeah. So, uh, happy birthday. Happy birthday. (laughs) Happy birthday, Linda. But, you know, yeah, we're getting to the end. You know, it's, uh, what's perfect timing is the movie's actually playing in the background for me right now. And I kid you not where we're coming up to, the statue. I mean, the scene, the camera is panning, is zooming in on Taylor and Nova on horseback. If you can picture it in your mind's eye, you know, you spoke of the, the camera work and how it puts the viewer in sort of the position of the characters on screen. Um, it's fascinating because you mentioned early on, you know, it's one of those movies where you wish you can unsee it so you can experience it, experience it, experience it. God, talk about uh, talking like apes. Um, but yeah, you, you wish you can experience it again because, um, you know, we're, we're at the end of the movie and what else could happen? You know, the director kind of has these long shots of them on horseback, um, these slow shots of the horse, you know, walking and they're, you know, Nova is on, on, uh, uh, on the horse with Charlton Heston with Taylor. And, um, you know, we, we get to, to the point where Charlton Heston Taylor gets off the horse and he's looking up and Nova's very confused. We still don't see what he's seeing. You know, that point of view is, 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 is important at the end of the film. Um, but, um, why don't you, uh, since you're watching it a little bit, why don't you, uh, kind of, uh, give us a little narration as to how this movie ends. Yeah, I mean, you know, as you just mentioned, we get a lot of tracking shots. And if you're the viewer and if you're sort of tracking, you know, the film, you know, it's the end. You know, you've probably been sitting down for an hour plus, an hour and a half plus. You know, you're right by the end of it. Um, You know, we have these shots of Taylor and Nova on horseback. And, you know, the there's that ominous line that Zayas delivers just before they set off. And, um you know, Taylor asks, what's out there? And I believe Zaya says, uh, you know, he says, don't look for it, Taylor. You may not like what you find. And then just, there's no more words exchanged after that. Taylor starts off on horseback and all of a sudden you see just the crown of some maybe recognizable figure as the camera slowly pans around. You still don't make it out. It goes back to Taylor and it's the realization on his face first is the, my God, we've, we've done it. Thank you. 
then you get that camera shot, that the classic pullback, and there it is. There's, you know, the upper torso of Lady Liberty sunken into the beach, um, yeah. in just a state of disrepair. And Taylor realizes that, you know, obviously he's been home, and um, you know, it's been the humans that delivered them to this point, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's an amazing shot, an amazing sequence, and uh, just an amazing concept. Uh, again, you know. Uh, you know, harkens back to, like you said, just, uh, you know, a Twilight Zone episode that, uh, you know, really takes you, you know, uh, takes you aback at the end of that, uh, that, um, the shot there. Just uh, iconic. And I wish I could sit down with Rod Serling today and ask him, you know, what what was the in, the intent? What was, you know, what did you want to leave the audience on? Or, may, you know, maybe that's more of a question for the director, for, you know, Franklin Schaffner, um, you know, to understand. Because that's such a hopeless ending, as it were. And, you know, to compare yeah. it to a movie that came out a decade later, like Star Wars, that it's literally titled A New Hope. It ends on such a feeling of exuberation and hope and you know maybe that's why planet of the apes has a certain niche and spot in the phantom is that most of its endings are you know more morose and melancholic and sort of hopeless um and i think it's because it's on the audience at that point to synthesize to to digest and realize you know how do we avoid that how do we not become a planet of the apes yeah, like I said, I mean, you know, the, there's many cautionary tales in sci-fi. I think, you know, lately everybody's talking about artificial intelligence. There's obviously movies that kind of deal with that. Um, but, uh, you know, they're all clumped together as cautionary tales. I think, uh, you know, we keep enjoying movies like this. We keep making them. And uh, the only thing that we don't keep doing is learning because, uh, you know, I, um, you know, we're talking to, like I said, we're talking about artificial intelligence and, uh uh, you know, our, our, our next thing is obviously, you know, we're going to start playing around with dinosaur DNA and I'm sure there's a movie about that there somewhere too. <laughs> well, I've been applying for new jobs and I have an interview with Cyberdyne systems coming up. <laughs> it's a, it's a programming thing. It sounds new. You know, I'm going to, we're going to see how that goes. Yeah. You know, they're, they're on the edge of something. We'll see. Excellent. Too cool. Too cool. Alex, uh, this has been an amazing discussion. I, I, I had so much fun with this. Finally, uh, off my uh, Scarif Scuttlebutt bucket list, uh, the original Planet of the Apes, 1968. What a wonderful film. Any final thoughts on this movie? Yeah. I mean, first, a thank you for having me on to talk about this. I mean, clearly the audience could probably tell I love it. I could talk about it for days and I'm scattered even talking about it. But, you know, just like a lot of the other programs I've heard you talk about on your show, like I encourage folks to try this out. You know, if you've never sat down to watch the original film or the original films, there's five of them. There's a short-lived animated series. There's a short-lived live action series. There's the newer films. You know, I think there's something for everyone, much like Star Wars and Star Trek. There's so many different entry points and you know it's something that you can sit down and really digest and think so i encourage people to give it a try to go seek it out absolutely um and you know kudos for the production team they got uh, roddy mcdowell to reprise the role in in the tv series that that you know almost didn't happen uh, but uh, an actor of that caliber again, you know, doing the television show and, uh, you know, a little Star Trek connection. I think, uh, you know, Ricardo Montalban was on uh, one is in one of the movies, uh, not playing Khan, of course, but uh, 
uh, you know, a, a decent character nevertheless. But um, absolutely, the law, the uh, original Planet of the Apes, and the films, uh, you know, subsequent to that, um, are really, you know, some thought-provoking stuff. And uh, again, just one of the biggest reasons I really enjoy speaking uh, science fiction with other fans uh, of the genre because uh, it always opens my mind. And uh, Alex, thank you so much for, uh, for your passion and, uh, you know, agreeing to come on uh, the show tonight. Absolutely. Ro. Thanks for having me. Excellent guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I don't know what episodes is this. Uh, I stopped, I stopped counting at uh, 124, but I got to go back all the time and see what number I'm naming these. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you have your own thoughts on the uh, Planet of the Apes movies, the originals, and want to weigh in, uh, leave us a voicemail at 773-234-8659. We'd love to hear what you have to say, and we'll play it on an upcoming show. We'll share it with Alex uh, to get his take as well. Excellent, my friends. So we are part of the Red 5 Network. You can find the rest of the team, the Red 5 family, at bio.link slash red5. There's a content creator in the show for everyone. Until next time, Alex, thank you so much. This is Ro from the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast, and that's the Scuttlebutt. Awesome, sir. Beautiful. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the Scare of Scuttlebutt podcast. Just wanted to remind you all, we can be found wherever you find your other favorite shows. iTunes, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean, SoundCloud, Podchaser, Backtracks FM, Podtail, Owltail, Google Podcast, and of course, our own Red5Network.com to name a few. And don't forget to drop us a voicemail at 773-234-8659, our Scuttlebutt hotline. We want to hear what's on your mind. Your call is very important to us. Let us know what you think of the show, what future topics we should tackle, or just to say, hello there. Please hold.